Good morning. Let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 as we look at the first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. When I was growing up, we spent a lot of time camping and out on lakes and things, and I always loved water, water sports and fishing. And, and uh, I remember when I was pretty young, I was taught how to tie up the boat when we would, when we would dock or, or beach at a, at a sandy spot. I remember one time we went from one place on the lake over to another beach area, and I think we went over there maybe to go up and get some ice or something like that. But it was my responsibility to get the boat tied off. And, and so we, I tied off the boat, and we all went up into this resort area to get some ice and things. And, and when we came back down, much to my chagrin, the, the boat was floating away. It, my knot that my dad had taught me how to tie on a, on a number of occasions... The knot did not hold. I did not pay close enough attention to my father when he taught me how to do it. And so uh, here we get down there and the boat is drifting away. Now, thankfully, it wasn't too far out where it was that big of a deal to retrieve it. But due to my lack of paying attention, due to my neglect, our boat was floating away. The reason I bring that up this morning is because that's what we're looking at when we look into the book of Hebrews at this point. The people are in danger of drifting away. They're in danger of not having paid close enough attention or continuing to pay close attention to their faith, and because of that, they're drifting away. The book of Hebrews is written to, as the title indicates, Hebrew Christians. We know that because we look throughout the book. There was a large expectation of knowledge of Old Testament things, of Old Testament truths. The Old Testament is directly quoted some 86 times at least, referencing over 100 different Old Testament passages. It was written to Hebrew Christians. So if you can imagine these people that they've been taught all their life to hope in the Messiah, to look forward to the Messiah. Now these people have accepted Him. They've accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. But if you were to scan up into Hebrews chapter 10, you'd find that that's causing some distress in their life. As they've accepted Christ as their Messiah, they're now being penalized or punished, persecuted for this faith. Because the Jewish nation as a whole did not accept Him. And so now they're looked at as traitors for trusting in Jesus. They're being made public gazing stocks. They're having their property confiscated. A little bit later in the book, it indicates that they had not yet resisted unto blood. So the persecutions that they had gone through so far had stayed away from the taking of their lives. But some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had been beaten. And so they're undergoing some real struggles. Now, because of these struggles, it appears that they are tempted to withdraw from an outward expression of Christ, and they're tempted to go back to the old way of doing things, back to the temple, back to the old priesthood and, and the sacrificial system, and they're really struggling in their faith. And as we come into chapter 2 at this point, in the first four verses, that's exactly what he's warning them not to do. He's saying, look, we better, we better pay close attention to the things that we've heard. And specifically, he's talking about, about Christ. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews compares Christ to the pinnacles of the Jewish faith. It compares Christ to prophets and angels. It compares Christ to Moses. It compares Christ to the Aaronic priesthood and, and Melchizedek, his priesthood. It compares Christ, the Old Covenant, to the New Covenant and the whole sacrificial system. 
to the once and for all sacrifice of Christ and just shows all the way through the book that no matter what he is compared to, Christ is supreme. And so as we look at this, that's exactly what they're being told is that the things that they've learned about Christ, this new covenant, this new testament, they better pay close attention to this Word of God lest they drift on by just like that boat was drifting away because I hadn't paid close enough attention to how to tie that knot. In their faith, they're going to drift if they don't pay close attention to the Word and specifically to the Word about Christ. Well, as we look within this passage, we're going to see three different reasons why we need to pay close attention to the Word of God in our lives. The first one is the nature of the speaker. The nature of the speaker. And you'd think, boy, that's just right in the title of it. It is the Word of God. (laughs) And so we ought to pay more close attention to that. He says in in chapter 2, verse 1, it starts out with the word, therefore. We always say, whenever you see the word, therefore, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go back into the context before it and find out what it's there for. In other words, the thing that he's saying right now is based on the things that he already said. So chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, is based on all of chapter 1. And when we go back right to the beginning of chapter 1, what does it say? It says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now notice what it's doing. There's a comparison right there. Saying, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God has spoken to us, and He's done it through the prophets. But, so here's the comparison. But now he's speaking through his son. God's raising it a bar. He's, he's bringing it up a notch or a level. Now he's not just speaking through prophets. He's speaking through the very, his very son. Because it goes on in chapter one, it begins to talk about this son of God and who he is and what he is like, where it says he is the radiance in verse three of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It's talking about an individual here that is God. This isn't just the prophets. It's not just God working His will in and through a human being. It's talking about a human being that's here that is actually the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. It says that He is the radiance of the glory of God. I always think of the sun when I think of that word because it's a radiant heat that comes off of the sun. And I think it's as powerful as the sun is. How do I experience the sun in my life when I feel the warm rays of the sun on my back? What am I feeling? Well, what I'm feeling is not the sun itself. I'm feeling what's radiating off of the sun. And in the same way, how do we experience God? We experience God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Well, it also says that he's the exact imprint of his nature. And this kind of goes back to the days where they'd you know, seal a letter with some hot wax and then they'd push their ring into it. And the exact symbol or the exact image of the ring would show up in the wax. It's like when, when I was a child and my mom would bring out the Christmas cookie cutters at Christmas time and, and she'd roll out dough on the counter and we'd take these cutters of Christmas trees and angels and push them into the dough and it would cut out exactly the shape of the cutter into the dough. And so it was the exact image of the cutter would end up in the dough. Or like when I was a kid and we'd play with the Play-Doh sets and they had all these different little shapes of things that you could push them, push the Play-Doh through or little cutters that you could push into the Play-Doh. And exactly the same image would show up in that Play-Doh as you uh, put it through, uh, as you put, as the shape that you put it through or 
the cutter that you use to cut it out. That's what he's saying about Jesus. Jesus is the exact image of God. He's the, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He is God. And then he goes on in chapter 1, having just compared Him to the prophets, and he compares Him to angels. And he says, to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son? <laughs> or, or sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. And, and, and so... These were statements that God makes about Jesus. So he says, look, Jesus is the Son of God. That's why when we come to chapter 2, and that word therefore is so full of meaning and impact. It means based on everything that we find in chapter 1, the greatness of the being of Christ, the greatness of His work in creation and redemption, the greatness of His person in comparison to prophets and angels, because of who He is, we really need to listen to Him. And that's exactly what we see as we come down into verse 3. In verse 3, it says, It was declared at first by the Lord, so this, this New Testament, this New Covenant, this, this Word of God, it was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So this great person, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, that's who spoke it. And if that's who spoke it, then boy, we better pay attention. We better listen is what he's saying. Then he goes on to say that it was attested to us by those who heard. So these are second generation Christians. They weren't the people that were there and heard it themselves right out of the mouth of the Lord. They are hearing it from the apostles. They're hearing it from the people that were there. So they're getting it kind of second hand. But they're saying it's trustworthy. And then how do they know that the apostles were giving them the words of God. Or was it, as some people will say today, well, what's the big deal about the Bible? Isn't it just a book of men? And that answer to that question comes right afterwards in verse 4. It says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. In other words, as the apostles were teaching about Jesus Christ, they were able also at that time to perform these miracles. You know, that Peter could walk down the street and people would lay their sick out there so that just if his shadow would touch them as he walked by, they would be healed. And we see testimony within the Word of God and and history about the apostles being able to do miraculous things. They were able to heal sick, people that were lame, people that were blind. There's even occasions where they raised people from the dead. And all of those things were God's stamp of approval. They were God's sign showing this is my word. These are my apostles. This is my teaching. When I hear somebody say, well, the Bible's just a book written by men, it absolutely is not a book just written by men. What this verse is saying is if, if man can do the other things the apostles did, like if man can heal one another, if it's just a human chore to be able to make the blind to see or the lame to walk, if it's within normal human ability to raise the dead, then okay, then this book is just a, man, just a man-made book. But the whole point of God's miraculous signs and wonders was to show that this was not just an ordinary book. That it was not an ordinary message. It was not an ordinary thing going on as the disciples were giving us this new covenant, this new truth from God about His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the very Word of God. I see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see what it says in that passage? That the Word of God, the Bible, is completely sufficient to make us what we need to be 
in living out our life for God. And why is it completely sufficient? It's completely sufficient because it is breathed out by God. That all this Scripture is the product of God. It's breathed out by Him. Yes, it's written on the paper by man, but it comes through the very breath of God. So it's His Word. In Peter's epistle, in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that comes right after Peter just got done reflecting on the time when he and James and John got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw Christ. They were actually there and saw Christ transfigured before them. And Peter remembers that time. And he says, but we have something even more certain than our own experience that we saw with our own eyes. And you know what that is? It's the prophecy of the Scripture. And he says, no prophecy is ever given by someone's own interpretation. It was never produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly why in his first epistle, he said concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what the person or time of the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I love that passage. You see what it's saying? It's saying that the prophets studied their own writings. And why would they study their own writings? I mean, you'd think if they wrote them, they would know what they said. But they studied their own writings because it was the Spirit of Christ within them that was giving them what to write. And so they had to learn from it just like we learned from it. In fact, with a larger collection of it, we have an advantage. But the prophets studied their own writings Because what was coming out of them was not their own. It was the Word of God. And that's what Hebrews is telling us here, is that uh, the Lord spoke these things at first, that one who is the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature. It was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. And as they confirmed it, God also bore witness by all these miraculous signs and wonders. So you see why we need to pay attention? Because this is a book like no other book. This is a message like no other message. This is a message from God. It was confirmed for us because of the nature of the speaker, because God sent not even just prophets, but His own Son to provide for our salvation and to give us this message. We need to pay attention because of the greatness of the speaker. But not only do we need to pay attention because of the nature of the speaker, we also need to pay attention because of our own nature, the nature of the recipients, us. And notice, we look in the passage, we also see a little indication of that. It says, lest we drift away from it. It's saying if we don't pay close attention, if we don't hang on, we're going to drift. And that's exactly what the Hebrews are in danger of doing. They're in danger of drifting. He's going to write to them later in chapter 3 and 4 and other places throughout the book. And he's going to say, boy, you better hang on. (laughs) You better get anchored in here. In fact, I love the... Analogy is just like our first illustration. It's a it's an analogy of a of of a ship. In fact, they used to talk about ships as they come into the dock missing it. Maybe they get a contrary wind or something, and they and they miss the mark. They drift on by. They don't reach their destination. And that's what he's warning them in the book of Hebrews. He's saying, look, this if you don't pay close attention, you're going to drift. You're not going to reach your destination, which is what it's eternal life in Christ. He's saying you're going you're gonna to miss the mark if you don't hang on, if you don't hold fast. 
in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19, it talks about uh, Christ as our high priest, with him as our high priest. We have an anchor for the soul, it says, and it gives the image of the anchor for the soul that reaches in behind the curtain, in other words, into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, and it's like this anchor is anchored onto the mercy seat in there. It's anchored into the Holy of Holies, so we're, we're locked in. When we're trusting in Christ, we are, we're anchored in to the very presence of God. But He's warning them and He's saying, if you don't pay close attention, if you don't anchor into Christ, you don't have that. You don't have that stability. That stability is only found in Christ. That salvation is only found in Christ. And that's what He's saying. He's saying, you know, we better pay close attention. In chapter 3, it uses the example of Israel and it looks back on when Moses delivered them out of Egypt and it points out that Moses delivered as a servant of God, delivered them out of the nation of Egypt. They experienced the salvation of God in that way and they came out and they crossed through the Red Sea and they came out to the other side and they ended up wandering in the wilderness. They rebelled against God and because of their rebellion, they didn't make it to the promised land. You remember they came out and they rebelled against God and they said, you brought us out here to kill our children and God finally had enough of them and He said, your children are going to go into the promised land but not until this whole generation has passed away. And only Caleb and Joshua who were faithful got to go into that promised land. The rest of the whole nation did not reach the destination, did not experience the full salvation. And why did they not enter into that salvation or into that promised land? It was because of their unbelief. And then in verse 12 of chapter 3, he is comparing that to what these people are doing. And he's saying, look, if you can turn your back on Christ, it's a manifestation of your unbelief. Just as their rebellion showed that they were not, they did not have faith, they did not trust, they did not believe, even so, now if you rebel against God by turning your back on Christ, it shows the same heart of unbelief within you. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by your deceitfulness of sin. And then verse 14 says, For we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. In other words, the point that he's making is that if we truly have faith, we will remain faithful. That's the nature of faith. If we truly believe, we are going to hold firm. We are going to hold fast to Christ. We get up into chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So you see the point that he's making here is that he's telling these people they need to strive. And he's confident in their, in their salvation. He's actually positive toward their faith. He thinks, that, he thinks it's genuine. He thinks it's real. In fact, in chapter 6 and verse 9, after giving them all these, giving them a whole bunch of stern warnings about turning their back on Christ, he says in chapter 6 verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for His sake in serving the saints as you still do. 
And we desire to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. They saw the fruits of faith in their life earlier on. And so he's confident in their salvation. But there's enough wavering at this point that he's fearful for them. Though he thinks that they're genuine in their salvation, he says, boy, you better test your heart. You better you better take a, a good look. Because if you can turn your back on Christ, that's not faith. And you might fall to the same example of disobedience and unbelief as Old Testament Israel did, who, by the way, did not make it to the promised land. And so he's warning them, look, you better be careful because of our own nature, because of our tendency to drift, because if, there's, uh, if our heart is unbelieving, we will not remain faithful to God. He says, you better pay attention, pay close attention to this word and to these warnings. But not only... Do we see it's because of the nature of the speaker that we need to pay attention? There's also the nature of ourselves, the recipients, that we better pay attention. We also see the nature of the punishment. He says in verse 3, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now this also is found in comparison Because he says in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So he's saying, look at the faithfulness of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was, in Jewish tradition, was taught to be delivered by angels based on something found in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. We also see in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19 that the New Testament refers to the Old Testament as being delivered by angels as well. And so as Christ is being compared to the angels, he's saying how much if, if the word that was delivered by angels was reliable and every infraction had a just retribution, a just penalty, a punishment, then how much more this one from the Son of God. If there's a penalty for being unfaithful to Moses as he delivers God's word, what's the penalty for unfaithfulness to Christ, the very Son of God, as he delivers God's word? And then in verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that's what we call a rhetorical question, of course. The, the answer's assumed. The point that he's making is, we won't escape. Saying if we neglect this salvation, there is no other way of salvation. There is no other way to acceptance before God. The Israelites, there was not a second path to the promised land. There was only the one that was dependent upon their belief, on their faith in God. And it's the same way for us. It is only in Christ, through faith in Christ, that we have eternal life. And notice the wording as we look at this. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect, a very important word, neglect this great salvation? You see, you don't have to be an atheist to miss out on this salvation. You don't have to be antagonistic 
or hostile toward God to miss out on this salvation. You don't have to be against the gospel. You just have to ignore it. You just have to ignore it. And I think this describes such a large amount of our population today. I would say the average person in our communities is not hostile toward the gospel. They might even give a nod of affirmation. They just don't have any time for it. Don't have any desire, no appetite. And unfortunately, that's all it takes. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come to eternal life. But most people just don't care. They just neglect it in their life. It's not on their radar. It's not on their calendars. It's not something that they is high on their priority list. How do we escape if we ignore this salvation? As we ignore this salvation, we don't deserve to escape. If God would send His very Son, He who is the radiance of His glory, the exact imprint of His nature, to deliver to us this gospel, and we could lift our noses to it, we could snub it, snub Him, how great is our catastrophe. So as we look at it, we need to pay close attention to the Word of God. Why? Because of the nature of the speaker. Christ is an awesome, awesome individual that demands our attention. We need to pay close attention because of our nature. Because if we don't, we have a tendency to let these things slip. And we need to pay attention because of the nature of the penalty. There is no other way of salvation. If you miss this one, you've missed it, period. May God find in us a faithful and believing heart.